we would, uh, maybe a half a dozen of us, we would take and shoot the arrows up in the air straight up and watch them till they would go out of sight. And then we would run like crazy. Oh, my goodness. And then, uh, then we'd hear them hit the ground. you go. Welcome to the Hobbs Happenings Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Hobbs, and thanks so much for joining us today. Today on the podcast, I have a very special guest all the way from Powell, Tennessee, Phil Gross. Phil, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, Andrew. How are you doing today? Doing well. And for those of you who don't know that are listening, Phil is my very soon-to-be father-in-law, uh, and he still <laughs> likes me enough to talk to me, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> no problem. I don't <laughs> think that is, that'll ever change. <laughs> so, so how how has it been with Sarah there the past few um, the past little bit, few weeks or whatever it's been? Oh, it's been exciting. Um, we've had a lot going on in the Gross household. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a bridal shower last weekend, and uh, this weekend they had a bachelorette gathering at the house. So, mm-hmm. uh, I've been overwhelmed by uh, by the ladies, but uh, <laughs> I've sort of. Uh, went to my uh, cave and uh, I knew when I needed to retreat, but I think they've had a good time. There you go. So they, they, have they been putting you to work on a bunch of wedding stuff or you just kind of smile and nod and say, have fun mm-hmm. guys. Well, we had a few things we had to uh, prepare. Um, Sarah had a, well, had a surprise. Uh, her her uh, sister wanted to put together what we call a fort. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when they were younger, um, I used to take bed sheets and, take old chairs and kind of position them in a room and just kind of drape them over. And we'd make a, a fort and used to read and play and do other things like that. But, but we kind of made a larger one this time. We hit, <laughs> we hit, uh, took uh, and hung several bed sheets in what we used to call the game room downstairs and, uh-huh. and then hung lights and, uh, and it's still up. So uh, Sarah doesn't want to uh, take it down right now. So she's still, enjoying that fort i mean if you let her it'll probably be up until we leave for the honeymoon so you're you're gonna uh, have to <laughs> the, she was very excited she she sent pictures to me and i couldn't believe that she could smile that big so uh well, so she liked it i think well and then um you know that I, I did um, breakfast i always like she had a special request for waffles and bacon and, and uh so that, and i think the girls enjoyed that um but uh, it's quieter now. Uh, she's upstairs with Megan. They're putting together some of the, uh, I call some of the wedding favors that she's creating because uh-huh. you know, she likes to do art and craft. So they're kind of doing that right now. Yeah, sounds like a lot of fun. But enough about enough about them, you know, and all that wedding stuff. This this one's about you. We're going to talk about how you grew up, what life is like from the perspective of Phil. So you ready for that? <laughs> yeah. that's gonna be a, it's gonna be different because i'm usually asking everybody else questions so but i <laughs> I, I don't think i have any problem well, here we go well we'll start you off with a really easy one phil tell me when and where were you born well i was born august the 23rd 1959 in johnson city which is uh, 
um, the city adjacent to where I was raised. I was uh, taken to Jonesboro. Um, I was raised by my mother and my grandparents. Uh, lived in the smallest, well, it wouldn't be the smallest town, um, oldest town in the state of Tennessee, known for its history and also uh, known for its storytelling. Um, the town of Jonesboro was the capital of the state of Franklin, which lasted for only about four years. Um, it lacked one vote being passed in Congress uh, to be an accepted um, state, but huh. you know, history changes. Yeah. And then the, the state progressed and eventually became Tennessee. Um, but I was born in a, a historical setting uh, with a lot of old homes, uh, antebellum setting, a lot of history, a lot of emphasis on uh, stories and knowing your story and telling your story. Um, so I think that influenced my life. Um, my grandparents, my grandfather was a builder. So I spent a lot of time following and watching him and learning some of that trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I even had the opportunity working uh, on a lot of the old homes in the Victorian style homes in, in the town. Um, enjoyed that. So uh, I do have a love for history and I do have a love for stories. And uh, I think that influenced Joanne. Yeah. But um, what, raised what, in a community. Yeah, go ahead. Well, what would you say then? Because you say that the town of Jonesboro has a, a big emphasis on storytelling. What does that mean exactly? Like how is storytelling so important to uh, the town of Jonesboro? Well, I think um, coming from history, um, the historical part influenced the story. And I think the community itself, uh, the people in the, in the, the town and, and several of the folks there that valued um, maintaining the history, I uh, saw a vision for the town. Mm-hmm. Um, one gentleman valued it enough that um, he thought he would start this festival in his backyard. And it was in October, around the fall, and uh, the very first gathering he had, it was just an idea. Um, he had like 400 people. And he came out of a, a family of educators. I mean, his, his mother was a teacher, his dad was a principal, and uh, he followed suit in that. So he had a love for uh, history and, and preserving um, history and also in, you know, doing something good in the town influencing stories. So the second year it grew, the third year, uh, I think they had around 1,500. And now um, it has grown into, um, they have a a center called the International Storytelling Center. And every first weekend in October, uh, the whole town turns into uh, just um, with tents and people that come in from all over the world, uh, sharing their culture and uh, sharing their uh, importance of passing on your story that sounds so cool i would love to go to that at some point so did you get to um i mean like i guess growing up and stuff around there did you uh, get to go to the festival that they hold every year well i, I never paid for the the high dollar prices for the tickets uh-huh. but uh, i knew which tents to go to that would often open up the side flaps where you could uh, sit and watch and listen mm-hmm. and often the uh, storytellers would when they were not uh, presenting their time of sharing their story they would walk through the streets through the town and they would just set up a chair or set up a corner and start telling their stories there downtown so you would often get to benefit from it 
from that standpoint, if you were younger and you didn't have a job and <laughs> be able to, to buy the tickets, yeah. But that's that's changed. I mean, it's it's full of culture and and um, and I guess when they went international, um, that influenced a lot of. But people come in from all over the country and all over the world that first weekend of the month for that. And I think the town has captured that um, that uh, identity. Um, I don't think anybody else in the country or the world has uh, an international storytelling center, but um, it's, it's flourishing. That is so interesting. That's awesome. So you're growing up years there in uh, Jonesboro. What did a uh, young Phil like to do if he had an afternoon to himself? What, what were some of your favorite activities or games or what, what, what did you do whenever you had some free time growing up? Well, we spent a lot of time outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, my community was full of boys, so you can imagine. Uh, we, um, of course, we spent a lot of time um, outside, and um, the tr- the traditional stuff: cowboy and Indians, uh, uh, go seek, and then, and then often we reversed that, and we uh, made that and created our own game called Fox and Hounds. Okay, where you would have a uh, fox that would be the person who would go hide and the hounds were the ones who would go find the fox uh-huh. but instead of just using a yard we used the whole town really <laughs> we would say you could hide in the whole town wow and then you can imagine it would take uh, sometimes an hour or so to find the person who was hiding um but then you know that would take us way into the evening and at night of course, we we played the traditional stuff, lots of softball, uh-huh. lots of baseball, football, basketball. We had basketball courts, uh, bicycles, uh, lived close to a train track. Uh, when it was legal, you know, we'd spend a lot of time walking the track and the trestle and dare each other to walk under the trestle across the creek. And we did things our parents didn't know and played in barns and rock quarries and um, made go-karts, uh, and we did some other things that, um, I don't know, um, like, um, that our neighbors, it would irritate our neighbors because back then you could buy things, uh, that were a little bit stronger than firecrackers, uh, <laughs> that were loud <laughs> and, uh, we would put them in apples and, and throw them at each other. Oh, and then, and, and one of the memories I have is, um, bow and arrows. Um, we were allowed uh, we had um, bows that were fiberglass, and I can't believe we were allowed to do things then that I mean you wouldn't be able to allowed to do it now. We yeah. would buy the 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 arrows that had steel tips, and I, I would say we were probably about ten or eleven year old when we did this. And we would uh, there'd be a half a dozen of us. We would take and shoot the arrows up in the air, straight up, and watch them till they would go out of sight. And then we would run like crazy. Oh my goodness! And then uh, then we'd hear them hit the ground. You go. <laughs> stupid stupid but you know sometimes we got hurt yeah <laughs> sometimes we had stitches sometimes we'd have stitches <laughs> i never forget one of the guys we were playing cowboy and indians one of the guys had a hatchet he threw it uh at a tree and one of our friends was he was hid behind the tree and he for some stupid reason uh took his head and peeked around it while the hatchet was getting ready to hit the tree and hit the, and he hit the side of his head and, and then of course we're uh, in big trouble with everybody, you know, with all the parents and stuff like that. But he survived. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, that's yeah. good. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. I, just, I, I have a tendency to ramble. No, you're good. I love that that uh, uh, fox and hounds game. That would be awesome, especially if you had a yeah. like big town or even. I think it, it would have been fun growing up if we'd have done that at the the farm that we lived on because you'd go all over the place yeah. and blast. Oh yeah, we we used the whole neighborhood. I mean, I'm yeah. talking about like twelve, fifteen acres and several blocks. That it is so. Fun. That's awesome. Um, it was a good community thing. A lot of people, a lot of the guys would participate in that. Yeah, that's neat. So uh, lots of, uh, you know, rambunctious young boys types of things that went on. Um, how about uh, school growing up? Uh, where'd you go to school? Did you like school? What subjects did you like? Those sorts of things. Oh, yeah. It, uh, being a small town, the town was like uh, the population, 2,000 people. Okay. So um, the elementary school uh, I don't know why I rode the bus. I mean, the elementary school was probably about five blocks away, but okay. we were allowed to ride the bus. And uh, so the elementary school, the first school building I went to uh, had first and second grade. And when they would dismiss the school, it was dismissed with a lady when the teachers would go stand out in uh, the hallway and ring a handbell. And I thought, you know, I'm 60 year old and <laughs> you would think that would happen during the, little house on the prairie time yeah but uh she'd go out and and ring the handbell and, and all the kids would go zooming out the you know the the door and and running to go home and sometimes i would walk home sometimes i'd ride the bus just depends on what i wanted to do during the day and what the weather was like mm-hmm. and then uh, you had the middle school was uh, you had the fifth and sixth grade or i know maybe third through sixth grade and it was another small building so a lot of the kids knew each other and, and small Middle school was a little bit larger, and then the county um, that I lived in, we had uh, two county, um, well, actually, we had three county schools, but you had uh, two county high schools, one on the north end and one on the south end, and the county had grown significantly during my period of time, you know, before I got in high school, and um, on the north end, you had Daniel Boone High School, okay. and on the south end, you had David Crockett High School. And David Crockett High School was about three miles from the birthplace of David Crockett. So mm-hmm. there, there's more history there. Yeah. And uh, David Crockett High School was contained more of the agricultural type of population. And most of us came from farms or the small town. And the Daniel Boone uh, benefited. Uh, most of their culture was industrialized. Uh, okay. A lot of the students went there. Uh, their parents worked in factories. and. Most of the time they had more money. Mm-hmm. So their equipment and everything else like that, you know, we were often jealous of. But that kind of that kind of paint a picture a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So um, those two high schools then, Danny Boone and David Crockett, did did they have a big rivalry between the two of them? Yes, it, um, we had a big rivalry. Um, every year we had a big football game that had to play at uh, East Tennessee State University in the Coliseum because oh, cool. that's the only place they would hold it. And we called it the Musket Bowl. And it's still going on today. The big rival between Daniel Boone and the very first year the schools were open, David Crockett beat Daniel Boone. Uh-huh. It was it was like eighty-seven to zero. And uh, after that, every year that we played, Daniel Boone would paint that on the side of their uh, helmets. And I think it took <laughs> maybe ten, twelve years before they eventually beat us. But I guess that's some of that farming blood in us uh, <laughs> that we had. <laughs> that's great. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. So with yeah. the, you said it's called the musket bowl. 
the musket bowl. Yeah. Did they did they have some sort of a trophy they went back and forth or just kind of uh, yeah. a bragging right? No, we had a we had a musket. It was the trophy. And and if you if you won, then you took the the musket to your high school and put it up in the trophy case and you know, you bragged about it all year. That is and so then, cool. And if they stole it away from you, then you lost it and then everybody was working toward getting that musket bowl, that musket back. Yeah. Um but I, 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 I didn't do sports that much. Um, I did work on the sidelines. I often did the uh, the PA system and the lights and the audiovisual side. Okay. I, and I, I was in music. Um, I was in the Crockett Congregation, which was the, the um, small elite choir that got to travel a little bit. So I, I, I spent a lot of my time in that era in my uh, study. So um, I, I love music. So that took a lot of my time on, uh, you know, extra extracurricular stuff yeah. I like to do. That sounds that sounds like my dad. Whenever I don't know if it was high school. I think it was high school too. But I know in college he uh, sang and he did uh, the trumpet and stuff like that. Um, so that that's neat doing that sort of stuff. Um, when it comes to the actual, um, you know, core subjects and things like that, I know you say you love history, um, just especially mm-hmm. from the town that you're around and stuff. Um, did you enjoy school, like the classroom setting and all that kind of stuff? Did you like other subjects besides history? Well, I, I didn't. I didn't like math very well. Okay. Uh, I loved English. Um, I loved to write. Um, you can match. Sarah took that as well. I uh-huh. think <laughs> from my background, um, and also I loved to talk and uh, spent a lot of time speaking. Um, and of course, I grew up in a very traditional Southern Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to church even before I was born. <laughs> and I had wonderful, I'm going to back up a little bit and kind of weave this into some of my stories. Yeah. So through, through that through that time, you know, church was very important to me. And and the people there in, in the sense of community, I had a lot of folks there who uh, believed in me, encouraged me, and, and helped me uh, with uh, identifying my gifts and my strengths. So, um Early through life, um, you know, I made a profession of faith when I was 11. Mm-hmm. And then um, there was something in me that continued to be drawn on a level of service and ministry that uh, pulled, kind of, I would say, drew me into a place where um, I, I, I had a pastor who explained to me that uh, I think you have a calling. And he explained what a calling was when you have a gift that... Um, God gives you, and then you have a desire to use that gift, and mm-hmm. then God continues to open up that opportunity for you, which He did and has, and continues to do so. And then, uh, of course, I didn't always follow every opportunity, but He kept putting it there in front of me. So uh, when I was fourteen, um, I, I made a decision to commit myself to ministry. I, I felt that I had a call to that to that work. I wasn't sure which direction. Um, but I found eventually that my gift uh, was more in pastoral care and gifted in the spiritual sign of mercy. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and through life, I can jump in, into you know, quickly into the future. Um, I left high school and then I went and started my undergrad work, uh, at Carson Newman, a local Southern Baptist college. Uh-huh. And then I, get, I was able to explore ministry a little bit more there doing different things, youth ministry and, evangelical work and and I found my passion was uh, more working with uh, ministry in hospitals Mm -hmm. and then um, I was introduced to chaplaincy in my senior year 
at Baptist Hospital in Knoxville. Didn't think that much about it. Um, had a professor said, "Now, you know, I think you might like this course." So uh, I tried it out and I learned a lot. Didn't think that much about it. Went on to seminary, and then I was introduced to a little bit more about pastoral care, and then I uh, found a program that was called clinical clinical pastoral education, and then I. Um, I went through that after I did my graduate work in seminary and brushed up my skills a little bit in pastoral care uh, and then was introduced to hospice. And then um, I've been in hospice now um, going close to 30 years. So all that saying is that um, what supports my feeling and thoughts about the call is this ministry kept coming to me mm-hmm. and, I, and, and you know, how I'm, you know, very hard headed, <laughs> but God, God didn't give up on me, yeah. which was good, and uh, still doesn't, never does. He doesn't give up on anybody. Um, God led me to this ministry, and and, and uh, I've learned a lot about life, and it's I've supported uh, a lot of other things in my life, like my family and uh, my wife, and my girls, and since community, and now uh, going into another part of life with uh, son-in-laws and the new son-in-law coming in and the mm-hmm. first granddaughter. So life's good, Andrew. Sounds like it. Now I, I want to hear more about your uh, job as a hospice chaplain. That's what you'd call it, right? Yes. Because to me, that is such a, first of all, such a unique job. And then it would have to take such a unique personality for someone to be able to do that. Cause you know, hospice care, you're around people that, aren't expected to live much longer. And that's what you're around all the time and trying to offer them hope. So how about start with what does a day in the life of a hospice chaplain look like? Well, I, I think the very first thing is preparation for your day. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you, because it can be busy, you have to be ready for it to change in any moment, you know, because you're dealing with end of life care. Um, and of and I think it's very important to start that day with um, your quiet time and um, listening. And uh, I think it's important to go to and the scripture is very important to me. The Bible is very important to me um, for a personal reason. I don't know how I can get into this without uh, mentioning this as part of my story. Hmm. But when I was younger at uh, first and second grade, I had a difficult time hearing. Mm-hmm. So I had a difficult time reading, learning how to read. So uh, in that process, um, teachers talked to my mother and my, grand- my grandmother and kind of gave them some counsel, said, work with him at home. And so, you know, meaning well, my grandmother would have me sit on the side of the bed every afternoon when I came home from school and read a chapter out of the Bible before I was allowed to go out and play. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I became very familiar, familiar with scripture. Um, and then I think God used that. Uh, to help shape and mold me, get me ready for the future. So going back to the, to the original question, yes, it's important to start your day right. Mm-hmm. And if I don't, I feel like I'm out of sync. Yeah. Because I think it's you have to be uh, receptive and ready to walk wherever God sends you. Um, there's a scripture passage that's become close to my heart right now. It defines basically the uh, nature and character that I think you need to maintain when you're doing hospice care. And that's Psalm 143, 8. Cause me to know your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way I should walk. I lift up my soul unto you. 
So there's a lot of points in there that mean something to me. You know, I start my day by recognizing God's goodness, um, trusting in God, asking him to help me to know where he wants to lead me when I'm walking through the day. And then, uh, and very, very important to commit my soul to him every day. So you start out right. And then um, I've had good teachers, Andrew, that have taught me how to listen. I'm not saying I'm perfect. But taught me to listen for spiritual care needs. Um, hospice has taught me, I think, what some of the greatest spiritual problems are, uh, what are some of the greatest spiritual needs are. And they're very universal um, because you're d- dealing with different religions today. Uh, but, I, but I still think that Christianity has a monopoly on grace. I mean, that's, that's where we are. And um, so when I'm going through the day, I start my day, usually 8 o'clock in the morning when I get there sitting down and listening to the evening report because I, I work for a large hospice in the University of Tennessee. So we have close to about 400 patients and uh, we have 22 teams and I'm the chaplain for three of those. So I'm listening and trying to tune in to anything that could have, could have happened to the people that I feel like I'm ministering to. And then you have new people every day that come in. So you try to see those within so many, uh, usually within 24 hours. And then you have people who are actively dying, so you have to adjust your schedule to go in that direction if the need's there. And then you do memorial services and funerals, and sometimes people ask you to do weddings and all the traditional stuff that you can do as a, you know, as a, as a chaplain or a pastor. But you know, you find about hospice is more about life and living than it is death and life. Yeah. So, um, how many? Uh, patients, would you say, or I don't know if that's what you'd call them, but how how many people do you minister to, um, I guess, um, at one time? So not saying that you visit them every day, but like how many people would you consider to be under your um, ministry that you're going and you're pouring into their lives? Well, I've, 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 um, I've got some standards that I try to uh, go for mm-hmm. as goals. And of course, you, you know, to help you um, be productive. And a lot of those standards come from your administrators and some of these standards you learn through time. So um, I try to do a minimum of four, uh, 20 visits a week. Okay. And anywhere between at least a minimum of four visits a day um, up to six to eight. Because sometimes I can go to a facility and I might see two or three patients in a nursing home or assisted living facility mm-hmm. if I'm lucky. <laughs> you know, if they're all in. And I do. I have that going on right now. Yeah. Um, Right, and each team has uh, around fifteen to twenty patients. So right now, I have around forty patients that I'm responsible for, and all the chaplains. We have ten chaplains that we we're, we're a close group. We communicate. We talk about our census. Uh, if our census gets heavy, we'll we'll share that census, and we all try to keep our load about thirty five patients, not over forty. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, now I wonder, I, I don't know if you're able to share these or not, but do you have any interesting or strange or just unique stories of times that you've gone and uh, visited somebody on one of those uh, trips to minister to the people under your care? Well, um, there's some things maybe I could share. Um, I do have a lot of specific stories, but I think I have to be careful with some of those. Yeah. But um, I did work in a residential hospice for eight years, and that was very, very unique. Um, and it was an 18-bed facility through the Mercy Health System, and it's very unique because people would come there and die there. 
and then um and they would make that place their home that room that they lived in so it was very unique opportunity just to watch the sacred um that goes on through the process of you know your life uh, ending and closing and doing your spiritual work it's needed uh, with the goal i think to have a peaceful death um so often you would have those encounters people would talk about seeing people um that have already died hmm. and um I know at the hospice facility, we were accustomed to hearing uh, our patients encounter some of the same individuals, which is kind of unique. Um, there were three individuals that often through the years people would witness and see, and usually um, they were visits to help prepare them, and they were good visits that were peaceful. And um, we had one gentleman who was an African-American gentleman who would appear in overalls, and then there was a nurse. Um, who was often dressed, or she was always dressed in a white traditional nursing attire with, with a hat. And we'd have a young boy. Uh, most folks described him as being around age eight, uh, playing ball, bouncing a ball up down the hall. And then we did have a dog, uh, a Newfoundland dog, that often would appear to our patients. So this was patients who would see these same, you know, these same spirits that in didn't know each other. So I think, you know, that kind of repetition kind of supports, you know, scripture, your faith. And, and then often you have some of those spirits that weren't so good Mm -hmm. to also uh, uh, reflect the side of our faith that people don't welcome and and the side, you know, the side of hell and, and things like that. But if you had an opportunity to talk to people about that, then, you know, people could gain some peace with, with that before they got to that point of separation and, and die. Yeah. Um, I, I did see, I have found a pattern that I haven't read anywhere in when they're dying, when they start in this same, in, in the same context, of what we're talking about, when they're seeing somebody in the room, when they see somebody uh, in the peripheral of the room, maybe at the window or at the door, usually that, that should get your attention that they may be dying within a week or two. And then if that person is at the foot of their bed or beside their bed or in their bed, that's usually means within that day or very, very soon that they're going to die. So, you know, you kind of pick up on those things as you go, little cues along the way that help you yeah. when you're ministering, reaching out to them. And that's so interesting because, you know, in our secular culture today, you know, anything that you talk about, you know, <laughs> spiritual type things is just kind of not taken seriously. But I mean, there are definitely spiritual beings that aren't just God and us because they're angels and demons and all sorts of different things. So that's, that's an interesting, uh, I guess, uh, perspective on it from as much, you know, death as you've been around in your profession. Mm-hmm. But I've also, I've often found that there's a model when I get confused, sometimes I have to pull back and, you know, it's easy sometimes because some people's life can be overwhelmed by, um, abuse, uh, uh, you know, things happening in their life where they, it takes a lot of time to build trust and, and really you have to work toward building trust with everybody. Yeah. And you, and sometimes you don't even feel like you get there, uh, but you work at that. But there's, there's like five points I've learned to watch for, uh, to kind of guide me when I'm working with people. And when I see people going through saying, forgive me, I forgive you. 
that's usually the <clears throat> early parts of working on your spiritual work. And then when people say uh, thank you, that means they're kind of moving along. And when they say I love you, that's usually a pretty good sign they're getting close to saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. So I kind of use that model along with some other models I've learned through time to kind of guide me as I'm walking through people. Gotcha. Well, that is, I, like I said, I just, I'm really fascinated by your, your profession. Whenever Sarah first told me what you did, I was like, you know, I know that that is a profession out there, but I've never thought about like what that would be like on a, on a day to day basis type thing, but very neat. Well, it, it's a, de- it's a, it's a developing profession. Uh-huh. When I first started <clears throat> hospice, the modern day hospice movement didn't really start till around eight, 1982, 83. Okay. Um, the hospice type care has been around since the time of Christ. Hmm. I mean, you, you can go through time and see uh, different models of it. But the modern day movement started around 82, 83 by, by a lady named Cicely Saunders, who was frustrated with the type of care that was available for people who were dying. And uh, she uh, developed a place for people to come and to relieve pain and symptom management when nobody knew what to do with somebody when they were dying, but it's evolved. And I hate to use that word, but <laughs> you know, it, it's, changed. it's, it's changed. I'm going to say it's developed with yeah. a better word, and grown to a, a more formalized type of care. And, um, and what's really made it jump forward is when Medicare got involved in around 86, when Medicare finally said, we'll pay for it. Mm-hmm. And then, then you had people out there saying, okay, let's, let's create, our programs, and then you had to put regulations together, and then you had to have advocates out there that are still out there today in Washington, D.C., to make sure that the philosophy doesn't get diluted and to make sure that it's out there for the people instead of out there for the company who runs Yeah, it. makes sense. It makes a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah. Well, well, Phil, I got to tell you that we've hit about our limit on the time, but I'm going to end the okay. podcast on one condition, and here's the condition right. for it. You've got to do yeah. more with me because I got a lot more questions for you. We need to hear about how you and your wife met, hear stories about Megan and Sarah, all of these different things that we'll have to do in the future. Does that sound like a plan? Oh, yes, sir. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. And to those of you listening, thanks for joining us here on the Hobbs Happenings podcast, where we use stories to bring our family closer together. Please join us next time for another exciting episode. And until then, toodles. Toodles.